Dracula. I am Dracula. And I bid you welcome, Mr. Hart, to my heart. Come Our first award goes to the vampires for most blood drained in a single evening. The strength of the vampire is that people will not believe in him. Good evening, my fellow vampire lovers. The sun is going down and you know what that means. It's time for me to record a new episode of my podcast, The Beautiful Dead. I am your host, Lena Nazari. And as always, you can find me on so many things. You can go to lenanazari.com and see links to social media. The Beautiful Dead podcast also has some social media. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok where I post quick little videos to tell people what my episodes are about, but sometimes I'll post some fun things like, for example, my vampire book party that I just recently had. You can also email me. That's lena at lenanazari.com and I will respond to you. I love to hear your thoughts, your ideas. I actually just met somebody at a convention and then he sent me an email asking me to do a movie, which funny enough, I have already recorded and that is just sitting Um, waiting for maybe a week where it's just too busy for me to get something posted and then I'll go ahead and post that. So it's funny, I had already recorded it. So I was able to tell him it was just sitting and waiting. But I love to hear from people. I especially love to hear from people I've met. um, And I love getting ideas. I'm currently reading Stephen King's Salem's Lot because of a recommendation from somebody. So um, I love hearing from you guys and I will respond to you. It's October. So that means it is spooky season. I'm very excited. This is my favorite time of year. I get to get lots of fun Halloween-y things for my birthday. So if you guys go to um, Instagram, you'll get to see the very cool vampire water fountain that my children gave to me. It's very neat. (laughs) They won't let me know where they found it, but I freaking love it. So you get like the sound of the rain, which I love that. I'm very auditory, but it's also a vampire standing in red light with the rain behind him. And the box even came with this cool little story about him. So I, I, you know what? I did take a picture of that. I will post that on Instagram. So go to Instagram. But it's October. Um, I I have a couple of things that I got to do this weekend that are annual uh, joys of mine. The first one is, as you guys know, I absolutely love vampire wine. 
And normally I have to order it from California, but in October it is available at the Wine and Spirits store here in Pennsylvania. So I went today and I stocked up on that. I also have some Halloween Oreos, which always makes me so happy every year. So that is, those are sitting upstairs. And we just packed up all of our outdoor summer things and we're getting ready to build a spooky graveyard in the front yard, which I do every year and I'm so excited for that. So I love October. And going in that same um, direction of doing something special for October, as I mentioned, we are going to step away from fictional works this month. I will not be talking about movies or TV shows or books. Instead, we will be talking about real vampire uh, topics and information. We'll be talking about history. We'll be talking about vampires in the recent news. Uh, and then we are going to finish October by talking about the many variations of Dracula, because as we know, there's been so many. That is the one I am most excited to do. So we're going to leave that towards the end. Um, and we're going to kick off October with a very exciting episode, one that I've had a lot of fun researching. Now, these are two figures that I knew a great deal about in my high school years. I, I was one of those who was always at the library studying and, and finding ghost story books and vampire lore books. And, and I read everything I could get my hands on about these two figures. Now, all these years later, going back and researching it, not just as an adult and a um, podcast host and an author myself, but also as somebody who is um, working on their doctorate and has become very adept at doing research and really picking through information, it really, these two stories have such a different feel to me now. And I am going to talk about my thoughts on all of these, but first I just want to talk about the history. So um, before we get to that, I, I want to touch on a couple of things. The first one is I've gotten a couple emails talking about when my next appearance is. I have to say, guys, I am not going to do any appearances until the spring, and there's a couple reasons why. The first one is I, I am a nurse, and I am in the hospital now, and it is very, very, very busy. So I do not want to, I don't want to take on an appearance, and then I can't go that weekend because I'm needed in the hospital. The second thing is that, I, like I said, I'm working on my doctorate, and that will be done in May. So a lot of pressure and time constraints are going to come off of me at that point. So I'm going to be realistic. I'm going to do the right thing, which is not commit to things that I'm not sure I can do. So I will not be doing any more appearances until the spring of 2022. We also need to bear in mind that COVID is still an issue and I need to be safe. I need to make sure that I can work, that I can take care of people, and that I'm not part of the problem. So I will not be doing any more appearances until May. Now, at that point, I plan on doing a bunch of appearances. So I already have one in May. I already have one in July and I'm going to keep working on more and more and more and more. So from May to October of 2022, there should be lots of opportunities to meet me. By then my sequel will be out. So that will be very exciting. I'll have a doctorate. So I'm thinking about maybe putting together an appearance that you guys can come to where we can celebrate my doctorate and me being done with school forever. But until then, please be patient with me. 
Along that vein, I've had people asking, what exactly is your upload schedule for this podcast? Well, the answer is I can't really commit to anything right now. I'd like it to be weekly. Um, but like I said, I am in the hospital. I never really know what's going to be happening. So I'd like to pre-record a few things. That way I can always get something out every week. But that is just not um, feasible right now. So... I, I will promise you that it will be at least semi-weekly, so every seven to ten days. And then once I get into a good groove and I get into a good place, it will be at least weekly. So please continue to be patient with me. The last thing I'm hearing from people is, uh, when is the sequel coming out? Well, <clears throat> that's not going to be until the spring again. So the aim is to have it out in May, which is when Byte Shift came out. Byte Shift came out May of 2021. So May of 2022, the sequel should be out and so on and so forth. So please continue to be patient with me and, um, and just let me get into the groove of doing so many things and wearing so many hats. All right, guys, that's enough of my my human news. Let's get to vampire stuff. That's why we're all here, right? So tonight we are talking about two huge figures in vampire lore and culture, and that is Vlad Zepish and the Countess Elizabeth Bathory, two very well-known historical figures. If you're somebody who loves vampires and loves uh, dark history, this, I think, would be specifically more medieval history. But if you like history that is dark and spooky and mysterious, I'm sure you've come across these two names. We're going to start with Vlad III. And we're going to have a little history lesson. So sit back, everybody. Pour yourself a glass of wine, as I have. Get comfy as I tell you some stories. So we're going to start with the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire, they saw themselves as Islamic warriors. They were created by Turkish tribes in the late 1200s. And they said, we are going to go out. We are going to conquer land. We are going to um, teach, teach. We are going to make people become, become Muslim. And we are going to fight for our God. And we're going to spread Islam across this, this world. Um, and their first hundred years or so after they came together was just all about territorial expansion. Let's get as much territory as possible. Let's get as many people as possible. Let's get as much as we can. And so they would conquer a place, they would take over, and then they would just keep moving and they would get bigger and bigger and bigger. They defeated the Byzantines. They defeated the Mongols, which um, anyone who knows history will know the Mongolian Empire was huge for a while, but they, they wiped that out. And now they've become a very real threat to Christian Europe. So in 1418, the king of Hungary, whose name is Sigismund, uh, who would later become the Holy Roman Empire, created what he called the Order of the Dragon. And this was a military order that was meant for nobility. And they would defend the cross. They would defend Europe from the Ottoman Empire. They knew this is a very big problem. This is a very real threat. And we need to come together as the noblemen of this area um, and fight in the name of Christ. And we need to make sure that uh, the Ottoman Empire doesn't come and take over all of Europe. And the symbol of the Order of the Dragon was a dragon whose tail was wrapped around his neck. So kind of in like a circle, if you guys know the Ouroboros, is that the name of it? With the snake eating its own tail. I'm sure somebody will email me and tell me. 
um, that was this emblem. And one nobleman that was inducted into the order was Vlad II. And so he was given the name Vlad Dracul, which was a derivative of the Italian word for dragon, Draco. Uh, all of you who know Harry Potter are now screaming. Yes, like Draco Malfoy. So he was given the name Vlad Dracul. And then in 1431, he had a son. His name was Vlad III, and he was born in Sigishwara, which was Transylvania, is now Romania. Uh, he was the second of four brothers, and he would be given the name Dracula, which is the son of the dragon. So son of Dracul, because his father's name was Dracul, so now he's Vlad Dracula, in respect to his father's position in the order. They moved to Wallachia in 1463, and his father would become the leader of this area. And in 1442, Vlad and his younger brother Radu, that's right, Radu, just like our character from Subspecies, were sent to the Ottoman Sultan as collateral. And it was sort of Vlad II's proof to the Ottoman Sultan that I will follow your law. I will bow down to the Ottoman Empire. Here are my two sons. And then six years later, um, Vlad would return after he heard the news that his father and older brothers had been murdered by the other Wallachian nobles. So there was a big uprising. They murdered Vlad II and Vlad III's two older brothers had also murdered. And I, I saw a couple different variations, but the consensus seems to be that the boys were buried alive, which is horrible. So at 17, Vlad comes back to Wallachia and he starts the fight to regain his father's position. And this position was called Voyevode, which is kind of like the prince of Wallachia. And the other nobles opposed him, obviously. And then he even had opposition from his little brother Radu. And Radu actually had the backing of the sultan. But Vlad did end up gaining the seat in 1448. He was actually deposed within two months. He kept up the fight. He did not quit. And in 1456, he would become the voivode of Wallachia and he would hold that title for quite some time. Now, here are the things that made him famous. And we're going to talk about all of them. And then we're going to talk a little bit more about my opinion of all of this. So Vlad, he's now voivode of Wallachia and he used extreme measures to ensure that the Ottoman Empire and the other noblemen knew exactly what they were up against if they decided that they wanted to take him on and they wanted to take over this area. His trademark, the thing that he was the most remembered for, was to impale his enemies. And if you guys don't know what impaling is, it's they take this huge wooden stake, massive. They ram it through your torso. They lift that thing up. They plant it into the ground. And then you slowly slide down this stake. And eventually there's so much internal damage damage that you do die. Most of these people did not die right, of way, right away. And so they would just slide down this huge wooden stake until they finally were deceased. And his first major act of revenge would actually be aimed at the noblemen who did not support his father. He impaled some of them, but then others he would force to march 50 grueling miles. And then he would force them to build him a fortress, which he called Poinari Fortress. And you can actually see the ruins of that to this day. 
Most famously, in 1462, he actually left a field with thousands of impaled victims. And the purpose of that was to deter the Turks from encroaching his land. So as the Turks came up over the mountain, they see a field of thousands of impaled men, and they're like, yeah, never mind. This guy's freaking nuts. He would also impale criminals, and he would leave them in the town square to warn those around his, his town Stop committing crime in this land because this is what's going to happen. So these practices would actually earn him the name Vlad the Impaler or in Romanian Vlad Sepish. And that is what he would go down in history for. Now, in 1463, he would be captured. He would be held prisoner for 12 years. And then in December of, I'm sorry, and then in 1475, he escapes, he comes back, he fights back, he gets Voivode again, he gets his, his seat back. But then in December of 1476 or, or January of 1477, Vlad uh, Dracula does die in battle. And this was just based on letters back and forth. They're not exactly sure when it happened. What they do know is that the report is that the Turks who did finally catch this man and kill him uh, did cut his body into pieces and then his head was sent to Mehmed II. And he was survived by his second wife. I didn't find much on his first wife. I'm thinking it was maybe like a, an, maybe not a, a up and up or maybe not the right person. Um, but his second wife and three sons. And Mehmed II, he was the Ottoman sultan at that time. And, and I can only assume he said, listen, whoever kills this guy, I want his head. <clears throat> now, Vlad's cruelty was quite famous. Uh, it spread very quickly, even before his death. Uh, as early as 1462, stories about him were being written down, sent to popes and emperors and kings and princes and everyone in between. There was a monk who managed to escape Vlad's prison and told stories of these tortures and cruelty. And then the man that he told this story to would actually write a poem about Vlad Sepish. And that would become pretty famous. That would spread around. Uh, one story that he told is that Vlad ordered the impalement of two monks to, quote, unquote, assist their travel to heaven. And then after that, ordered that their donkey also be impaled because it was braying after its master's death. And then there was a man named Antonio Bonfini who wrote, and this is in quotes, Turkish messengers came to Vlad to pay respects, but refused to take off their turbans. According to their ancient custom, which we know that is a um, Muslim belief that you don't take off your headwear, whereupon he strengthened their custom by nailing their turbans to their heads with three spikes so that they could not take them off. In Germany, there were many, many books that were written about Vlad, and these books would actually be kind of the first bestsellers in Europe. They spread all over the place. And to enhance sales, they would actually publish the books with woodcuts on their title pages that depicted these horrific scenes. So, for example, there was an edition that was published in Nuremberg in 1499 and then in Strasbourg in 1500 that depicted Vlad dining at a table in a field surrounded by dead or dying people who had all been impaled. And I think that's the very first picture I ever saw of him in some library somewhere back in Manassas, Virginia. Um, and I remember it to this day. And that was kind of like on the front of this best-selling book. 
from the book is written, and this is in quotes, Vlad had a big copper cauldron built and put a lid made of wood with holes in it on top. He put the people in the cauldron and put their heads in the holes and fastened them there. Then he filled it with water and set a fire under it and let the people cry their eyes out until they were boiled to death. He invented frightening, terrible, unheard-of tortures. He ordered that women be impaled with their suckling babies on the same stake. The babies fought for their lives at their mother's breasts until they died. Then he had the women's breasts cut off and put the baby's head inside head first, thus impaling them together. Now, if you talk to some modern historians, we're going to jump ahead now to now, uh, they present Vlad as a ruler who was doing what he had to do to stop the invasion of the Turks into Romania, to stop the fighting amongst the nobles in his area, to strengthen the government, to stop the rampant crime. And there's actually a local poet in the 19th century who felt that Vlad was a reformer and that his acts were necessary at the time to save Romania and regain public order. And I think this is where I, I, I want to pause and, and, and point out a few things. So the first thing that we have to remember is like a lot of this is all word of mouth, right? There was no Google back then. There was no like um, YouTube. Nobody was vlogging or blogging or anything like that. So it's just like gossip at a pub and everybody's passing these stories on. Well, I heard that Vlad did this and I heard Vlad did this and oh my God, Romania, what a mess. And so we do have to remember that not a lot of this is 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 all word of mouth and even the documents and the letters that they have are written by people who for we don't know what their motives are we don't know what was going on at the time we don't know what they were trying to do maybe somebody was just trying to get out of romania so they're sending a letter to Rome saying, oh, my God, this man is crazy. He's killing monks. You got to get me out of here. So I think it's important that, you know, we take a step back now in 2021 and listen to these stories and think, OK, how much of this is very true? Do I think he's completely um, innocent? Absolutely not. Do I think that he thought he was doing what he had to do to regain order? Possibly. Do I think he actually impaled women and babies and shoved babies' heads into cut off breasts? I don't know about all that. So I just think it was interesting. The more I read, the more it came across like gossip. And the more I had to think like, okay, what are people getting out of these stories? I mean, even now it's 2021. I'll hear stories um, from people at work or I'll hear stories, you know, and I'll think, well, what, where did that come from? Where do, where are you hearing that? And I'll trace it back to the source and here the original material was very much different than what I heard. So I think these are things that we all need to just take into account when we're reading these stories. And like I said, with the, with the German edition, or I'm sorry, uh, the German books that became uh, bestsellers, you know, if you slap a sensational picture on the front of it of a dude like eating a steak with a bunch of dying people all around him, I'd buy that book. Be like, I, I need to read what the heck is going on. So it's almost like it's like a modern day um, serial killer story, right? You know, all of these true crime videos that I watch on YouTube, it's that same kind of thing. I see a picture and I'm like, oh, I want to listen to that. So 
who knows? Who know? Who knows how much of this is real? However, he is a huge, huge, huge part of vampire lore. Um, it's funny. I, I'll post it on my uh, Instagram, but I actually have two beautiful pendants that I bought at some horror convention somewhere. Um, and one is a portrait of Vlad and one is a portrait of the Countess Bathory. And um, they've always been prized possessions of mine. And so it's funny to go back now and reread all of these stories, not as a curious 16 year old in a library, but as a well-researched and, um, and, you know, older person who has now lived on the earth for so long. I read these stories and think, my goodness, how much of this was really true. All right. I digress. So the big thing we need to point out is there the first connection between Vlad Sepish and vampires came in 1894. And that, of course, would happen when an Irishman named Bram Stoker wrote a little novel that would change vampires and the public perception forever. And I am going to talk more about that at the end of the month when we talk about the variations of Dracula. But I think we can just think as we go back and we and we think about Vlad as an impaler that he drove wooden stakes through people. We could see how that would be tied into vampire lore. Um, the idea that he is opposed to all things Christian, you know, that I can see where that gets tied in from his story. Um, beheading as a whole as a whole thing. You know, he was beheaded and his head was sent to the Ottoman Sultan. So it's interesting as I read all this stuff, I can see how an author would hear these stories and go, yeah, I can work with this. So it's very interesting. Um, I did a lot of research into the area of um, of Wallachia and and um, Sigishwara, which which you can go to now. You can see Bran Castle. You can see where he was born. You can see where all of that stuff. And and one of these days, I was actually supposed to go last spring, and it kind of all fell apart because of COVID. But one day, I will be going and checking this all out and uh, posting pictures. So I will let you know. But that is the story of Vlad Sepish, also Vlad Dracula, um, and uh, the Voivode of Wallachia, a huge historical figure. Um, you can speak to different Romanians and get different ideas of this man and what he did and why he did it uh, and whether it was right or wrong. But I just think he is such an interesting figure. And if you don't know what he looks like, Google him. I'll tell you, there's a, there's a thousand pictures out there. All right. Stepping away from the, the uh, male inspiration for Dracula and stepping into the female inspiration, we're going to talk about the Countess Elizabeth Bathory, who's also referred to as the Bloody Countess. Some people call her um, Countess Dracula. She was born in August of 1560 in Hungary. She was born into a castle to a father who was a baron and her mother a baroness. Her uncle, Andrew Bathory, had actually been voivode of Transylvania at one point, and her maternal grandfather had also held this position in Transylvania. So the, it's the very same seat that was held by Vlad a hundred years before is now being held by relatives of Elizabeth. She was also related to the King of Poland and the Grand Duke of Lithuania. So when Elizabeth was born, to say that she was a blue blood was an understatement. She was born into an extremely noble family. 
Now, Elizabeth in childhood would suffer from epilepsy. She would have these horrible seizures. Of course, the rumor is that this is because of inbreeding, and I wouldn't be shocked to know that that was the case. However, it is alleged at one time that one of the remedies for this was to rub the blood of a non-epileptic on the lips of the epileptic, which possibly would have triggered her future belief that blood will cure everything. But there's no real proof for this, okay? All of this happened after her death, all of these gossips and and, um, allegations. At 10, that's right, 10, Elizabeth would be engaged to a count. Um, It is rumored that Elizabeth gave birth to an illegitimate child at 13 who was taken away. But like I mentioned in Vlad's story, you know, there's a lot of gossip surrounding this. There's no proof. There's no validity to this. Uh, They're saying that it was the uh, child of some local peasant man um, and that the the baby was like carried away in the night because the family was so embarrassed. There's no proof of any of this. Uh, In 1575, at the age of 15, Elizabeth would marry Count Ferenc, who was 19, so that's not too bad. Since her social standing was higher than his, he would actually take on her last name when they married, which I thought was interesting. So that would make them the Count and Countess Bathory. After marrying, his mom actually gave them a castle as a gift, and they would move into this castle in the uh, Carpathian Mountains. In 1578, her husband would be put in charge of the Hungarian army, and he would le- he would leave to lead them into battle against the Ottoman Empire. So it's a hundred years later; they're still fighting this fight against the Ottoman Empire. And now, while he was gone, Elizabeth would actually manage the estate. She would manage the business. She'd be in charge of a lot of things. She would actually be in charge of like giving medical care to the people of the village. It sounded like she was a very uh, adept young woman and that she was very capable. He returned and they would have five children. Now, in 1601, he would start to develop extreme pain in his legs. And by 1603, he was no longer able to walk. He was paralyzed. He was um, uh, um, not able to really do all the things he had done before. And then by 1604, he would actually succumb and pass away. I wasn't able to find a whole lot of information on this on this. Um, illness or disability or whatever happened to him. As a nurse, I was really curious to see if I could figure out what it was, but there wasn't too much about him. His his history is really lost because of her history. Everything about him is overshadowed by her, so there's not too much to find out. But before he passed, he would entrust his widow and his children to her cousin, who was an, a Hungarian official named James, or I'm sorry, George Thurzo. George. Thurzo. Um, During the time that Ferenc was suffering, rumors of Elizabeth's crimes had already begun. And it wasn't until the rumors included her killing noble women that it really got the attention of those in power. So by 1610, so six years after he passed away, the king did ask someone to investigate. And interesting enough, the person who was asked to investigate her was the very man who was left in charge of her, and that was Thurzo. So when Thurzo arrived unannounced to the castle, this is per him, he arrives unannounced to the castle and he found one dead girl and one that she was in the process of torturing, which he referred to as prey in a letter to his wife. By 1611, 
Thurza would collect 300 witnesses who gave statements and Elizabeth was under arrest. And here are the accusations. For those of you who don't know Elizabeth Bathory, you're about to be very shocked. The allegation is that the Countess began with girls between the ages of 10 and 14, and she would just sort of snatch them up and murder them, torture and murder them. And that then she would move on to the daughters of the lesser gentry. And they, so she had had this thing in her, in a, in a portion of her castle um, that was almost like a school for young girls. And it was to teach them etiquette and how to be around nobility and how to be in court. So these younger gentry families would send the women, the young girls to her home, to Elizabeth's home um, to, to teach them how to be ladies of nobility. And she was accused of like beating these girls and burning them and manipulating them and mutilating them and biting them and starving them. Um, and then it was even accused of like leaving them out in the cold to die. Some reported that she was a cannibal who had, who had killed and eaten the girls. Some reported that she would cover the girls with honey and live ants, but all of this is to say that they, they would send these girls to her home and the girls would die and nobody would really ask questions. But then it came out from some of these quote unquote witnesses that they personally saw the countess torturing girls, killing girls, and that um, she was she was basically wiping, torturing, beating, starving and killing young girls for years and years and years. So to save this royal family from humiliation um, and to stop the crown from being able to seize her very immense fortune and property, there would be no real trial. So they just kind of said, hey, you're convicted. We're convicting you of 80 counts of murder. And the answer was that she would be confined to her castle until her death in 1614 when she was 54. Some stories say she was walled up in one room. Other stories said, no, she had free roam of the house, but she wasn't allowed to leave the house. So she was like under house arrest. So let's talk about some important aspects to all of this. It is important to point out that many of the quote unquote witnesses admitted to hearing the tales, but not actually seeing anything. So it's a whole ton of hearsay. Um, some witnesses were relatives of the girls who had been sent to the castle and died. So they may have just been grief stricken and they don't want to believe that their daughter just died. They want to believe that something nefarious happened. Uh, there were four servants who were actually arrested and accused of helping Elizabeth bury bodies um, and they did confess, but they did so after a lot of torture. And if you listen to varying accounts, you know, Elizabeth could have killed anywhere between 50 and 650, depending on who you speak to. There was a witness who reported that Bathory had written down 160 names, like written a journal of all the people she had killed. And there was 650 names, but there's no evidence of that. And another interesting side note is that the king actually owed the Bathories a very large debt. And that debt was actually canceled in exchange for the family being allowed to be in charge of Eliz Elizabeth's captivity. So he said, yeah, you know, the Bathories, you guys owe me. It's like, I owe you so much money. But 
if I let you be in charge of Elizabeth's confinement and I don't put her in jail and I don't put you through a trial and I let her just kind of hang out at home, why don't we say we just cancel that debt? So that was interesting. And another interesting thing is, and this was the thing that I always thought about her, was that there were all of these stories that she would actually bathe in the girl's blood. And the purpose of that was to regain or retain her youth. But it, it's interesting that these stories did not actually emerge until a hundred years after her death. And I can tell you as a nurse, thinking about this, to be able to fill a bathtub with blood, that's a lot of blood. And it would be clotted before you could actually like fill it up, get undressed and climb into this bathtub. So she would be like sitting in a bathtub of clotted blood. And so the whole thing to me just felt like, wait a second. So the stories are coming out a hundred years after her death. What is the actual feasibility of being able to have this much blood on hand in a bath? I, it just, it, I don't know. It kind of sounds preposterous, but has there been crazy people in the, t in the time of human beings who have done crazy stuff? Sure. Yeah, there are crazy people. So I don't know, maybe, maybe that's what she did, but you can see how that ties into the whole vampiric lore of blood bringing on youth. Now there is a letter from a priest reporting that the countess and her husband were excessively cruel against servants. There is a solid possibility that she was very cruel to young women, that maybe she was so cruel that she might have killed some inadvertently because she was so harsh or maybe intentionally because she was just sick. I don't know. But it sounds to me like the tales are quite exaggerated and that the numbers are probably very skewed. However, she is listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most prolific female murderer. So I don't know where their fact checking is coming from, but she is actually actively, if you go to the Guinness Book of World Records website right now, she is listed, Elizabeth Bathory, as the most prolific female murderer, and they have her down for 650 lives. So let's tie in. What, the reason you guys are all here, right? This is a vampire podcast. She has been called the Bloody Countess. She's been called Countess Dracula. Um, being linked to Transylvania like she is, it wasn't very long before she became linked to vampires. She has been the inspiration for a ton of movies. So some of the movies are Mama Dracula, Daughters of Darkness, Chastity Bites, Immoral Tales, Countess Dracula, Werewolf Shadow, Bathory, Countess of Blood, and The Countess. Um, we already talked about the character in American Horror Story Hotel who was named The Countess. I'm pretty sure she was an inspiration. Um, I'm sorry if the writer of, of American Horror Story ever listens to this and I am wrong. Please let me know. But I, I just thought she's called The Countess, for goodness sakes. And then if you watch Fright Night 2, not the original, the remake from 2013, it's called Fright Night 2 new blood. It is filmed and set in Romania. And the movie reveals that this beautiful female art teacher on this um, European trip with these kids is actually a vampire who is hell bent on using blood for this ritual. And she is seen bathing in blood. And that is inspired directly by the Countess Elizabeth Bathory. 
And it's not just movies. She's even a major character in a video game uh, called Castlevania. There's a black metal band named after her. And then Cradle of Filth even wrote a song called Bathory Aria that is all about her. And much like Vlad Sepish, you start to look at, you know, what are the motivations for all of these, these rumors? And you look at, here is a woman who has been widowed and has an immense fortune, lots of land and property and servants. And she has shown that she is very capable and that might threaten a lot of men, you know, men in her family, men in the noblemen in the area. Um, and so they might be motivated to spread these stories about her to get her under arrest. Because, of course, once she's under house arrest, somebody else takes over her fortune. And, of course, it was one of her male relatives. Um, there, of course, was political motivation. The king owed them a ton of money. There was all kinds of, I mean, the peasants are bored. Uh, and how, what's more exciting than somebody saying, I think that countess kills girls. And then it just goes from there. And a couple nights in the pub, before you know it, a couple drinks later, you're talking about her bathing in virgin blood. So, I mean, it could be that. And I think it's interesting that there was all of these rumors about her killing peasant girls and girls in the village um, and lesser gentry girls. And nobody said anything. But then once the rumor included noble women, well, now everybody's acting and now people are investigating and this and that and all that. So I, often th I also think it's very interesting that the man who was asked to investigate her happens to be the one who was kind of left to watch over her. And maybe she didn't like that. Maybe she didn't want him watching over her. Um, maybe she pushed back and she said, no, you're not going to be in charge of my fortune. I don't need you. I'm very capable. Get the hell out of here. And now suddenly he's the one investigating her for crime. So like I said, with Vlad uh, and with Elizabeth, who knows what the motivations were behind it? Who knows what people got out of, of the belief of these stories? Are they completely innocent? Probably not. Did they do all the things they're accused of? Probably not. So somewhere in the middle is the truth. But I will tell you that Elizabeth and Vlad had huge impacts on the vampires that we know today. And I am going to have an episode that will talk a lot about the history of vampires, how they started versus where they are now. Um, and we're also going to have an episode talking about, you know, the vampires of Asia versus the vampires of Europe versus the vampires that we know and love. So... I will tell you that if you start researching vampires in Asia, they are definitely, there's no Damons or Eric's in that group. These are vicious, bloodthirsty demons who are cursed and all kinds of stuff. So it's very different to go look at vampires in different cultures. That is it for my very first October spooky episode talking about the history of vampires, talking about Vlad Sepish and the Countess Elizabeth Bathory, two very interesting characters. If you want to do more research, go for it. I highly recommend it. There's so much information out there about them. Lots of pictures. Like I said, I'll post those pendants on Instagram for everybody to see so you can see some pictures of the Countess and Vlad. And if you are loving this and you'd like to see more of this, as opposed to me talking about 
movies, please feel free to reach out. If you hate it and you just want me to get back to talking about movies and books and TV shows, you like the sexy vampires because I can tell you guys, look them up. Elizabeth and Vlad, not very sexy. If you missed that, let me know, but I'll just tell you it's coming back in November, so calm down. It will be back. Please, if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast, like it, share it. Please put comments and star ratings. Guys, this helps me so much. It helps the podcast get out to other people. Now in October, it's the best time because people are seeking out spooky material. And listen, there's not a lot of vampire stuff out there. The ghosts are very overrepresented. Demons, lots of stuff out there. Zombies, oh, so much stuff on zombies, right? Let's get the vampires out there. Let's get them represented and let's get them out there. So please share this with all the people, get it out there on social media. In the meantime, I love you guys so much. Thank you for making it all the way to the end. I'm gonna wrap it up for the evening and enjoy the last bit of my vampire wine. And as I say to all of my fans, I wish you wicked hugs and bloody kisses. And good evening.